For those of you who are just joining us for this panel or who are just tuning in through the Cato live streaming, uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. And uh, I want to welcome you to uh, this 15th annual Constitution Day Symposium. Uh, on this, our third panel, uh, we take up two decisions that the court handed down involving property. One, a forfeiture case concerning the right to counsel. The other, a unanimous ruling upholding the right to challenge a governmental wetland decision. But we, before we turn to those cases, we'll look at another unanimous decision involving property, sort of, whether a public official who accepts loans and gifts, but who thereafter performs no official acts for the benefit of the donor has committed a crime under the Honest Services Statutes and the Hobbs Act. I allude, of course, to Virginia's former governor, Robert McDonald, and the decision in McDonald v. United States, the famous quid pro quo case, which finally ended just last week when federal prosecutors decided not to retry Governor McDonald. Here to discuss the uh, McDonald decision is Emma Quinn Judge, uh, whose bio you'll find in your symposium folder, so I'll be brief. Uh, Ms. Quinn Judge is a partner in Boston's Zalkin, Duncan, and Bernstein, where she focuses on criminal defense, employment law, and appeals. She represents criminal defendants in both state and federal courts. Her civil practice focuses on employee-side representation in a range of employment matters. She's a graduate of Middlebury College and the Yale Law School, after which she clerked for Judge Michael Ponsor of the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts and Judge Rosemary Pooler of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Please welcome Emma Quinn Judge. Thank you very much for that warm introduction. I am here, um, as, as Roger indicated, to talk about the last, very last case of the term. It was a unanimous 8-0 decision vacating Bob McDonald's convictions. After he was elected in November 2009, uh, Governor McDonald and his wife received over $175,000 in gifts and loans from the CEO of a nutritional supplement company who was seeking to have the governor's help in persuading Virginia public universities to fund or undertake studies of this supplement. There was a $20,000 shopping spree, a Rolex watch, a free vacation with a boat rental and a Ferrari. The facts, as the Supreme Court put it, were tawdry and distasteful. But in a unanimous decision, they did throw out the governor's convictions. I may be unduly pessimistic about this, but I think it's a narrow decision that's not going to do a terrible, not going to do very much to change the, some of the fundamental problems that plague these prosecutions, um, federal prosecutions of state and local officials. One of the problems uh, that you have is structural. When you are prosecuting federal employees for, federal, for public corruption, you have both statutes and a whole regulatory scheme. The same thing applies when you're dealing with state employees under state law. There are statutes and there are regulatory schemes and ethics codes and all these things that inform what these laws mean. 
when you, it's only when you have the federal government prosecuting state and local officials that we rely on statutes that are divorced from a broader regulatory scheme. And the issue is exacerbated by the fact that very few federal statutes explicitly address state and local corruption. Uh, one scholar has suggested that there's only one that directly uh, addresses this, the federal funds bribery statute. So you're dealing with prosecutions under statutes that largely don't define the conduct at issue. We know that due process requires that a statute be sufficiently clear that a defendant has fair notice of what it is they can't do, um, and to prevent arbitrary prosecutions. And in the case of state and local politicians, the concerns, these constitutional concerns are heightened because you have federal prosecutors basically engaging in oversight over state and local political activity um, under statutes that don't cabin their authority to do so very much. You also have the practical reality that these are unsavory or tawdry cases. Um, politicians are unsympathetic defendants. When they're accused of, of doing something wrong, they're being accused of violating the public trust. Um, so the notion that they've breached their responsibility is, it makes their conduct seem all the more offensive. Um, it's not hard to find bad judgment, unethical decision-making, horse trading, back-scratching, deal-making. Um, and these cases occur in full press scrutiny, whether it's just the local paper or the national news. So this is not the context in which abstract constitutional principles like fair notice get a lot of traction. Going back to McDonald, what you see is a narrow decision focused on a single issue of statutory interpretation, and it hints at some of the problems in these cases, but it doesn't really grapple with them. There are two substantive statutes at issue in McDonald. One is the Hobbs Act, which is an extortion statute, which was gradually expanded to include bribery, even though bribery is not explicitly in the terms of the statute. And the other is the Honest Services Statute, which of course started as a gloss on the mail fraud statute. And while it was originally a gloss, um, the Supreme Court in 1987 in the McNally decision said, you, you can't prosecute somebody under, um, under this doctrine that has no defined outer boundaries. You're bringing federal prosecutors into criminalizing state and local political conduct. Um, after the Supreme Court said that, however, Congress turned around and enacted a statutory version of the same thing, which reads in its entirety, for the purposes of this chapter, the term scheme or artifice to defraud includes a scheme or artifice to deprive another of the intangible right of honest services. Over the next several decades, the legal system engaged in what I think is a, a collective fiction that this statute was both intelligible and sufficiently clear to pass constitutional muster. And it wasn't until 2010 when the Supreme Court was reviewing the conviction of disgraced former Enron CEO Jeffrey Skilling that it suggested and recognized that construed broadly, the statute was hopelessly vague. Um, I've read the statute to my mother, who's not a lawyer, and I think she could also tell you it's hopelessly vague. The court, at this point, pared the statute down to its supposed pre-McNally core, bribery and kickbacks, and said, great, now we have a uniform national standard for these prosecutions. Three concurring justices said, I'm not so sure about that, and asked, said that we haven't fixed the fundamental problem. What is the criterion of guilt? Where's the line that divides culpable behavior from something else? The majority basically said, we know what bribes and kickbacks are. This is a theoretical debate. 
not a big deal. So then we have McDonald. Now, McDonald is convicted for bribery under, again, the Hobbs Act and the Honest Services Statute. Neither statute actually defines what bribery is. So the parties agreed to define bribery by reference to a completely different statute, the um, bribery statute that applies to federal employees, and they looked at the, the term official act as set forth in that statute. McDonald's big argument was basically, I didn't really do anything. I set up some meetings. I talked to some people. I asked my staff to talk to some people. That was it. I didn't do anything in exchange for this $175,000 uh, set of gifts and loans. The government, on the other hand, took the position that pretty much anything a public official does is an official act. The court balked at the government's interpretation and really seemed concerned that it would criminalize basic constituent services, anything um, that, that someone does for a constituent who needs some help, who may also be a donor, um, anything about transactional politics could really be cramped by this view. And the court seems to have been heavily influenced in this respect by the many amicus briefs that were filed on the side of McDonnell, and many of which were by former both state and federal public officials, White House counsel. Um, there's a whole section of the decision, in fact, that basically qu quotes amicus briefs. So the court tried to put some parameters around the concept of official act and, and ended up saying that it's a formal exercise of governmental power that's similar in nature to a lawsuit before a court, a determination before an agency, or a hearing before a committee. It also has to be specific and focused. It has to be pending or something that may by law be brought. Therefore, setting up a meeting, talking to another official, or organizing an event do not, standing alone, meet the definition of official act. This sounds fairly constrained, and certainly the initial press coverage of this decision suggested that the court had really narrowed the scope of these bribery prosecutions. That's what I don't really buy, because when you look at the fine, fine print, it's not so clear that the scope has been narrowed. One of the examples the court gives is that initiating a research study is an official act. Initiating a research study already sounds some distance away from a lawsuit, an agency action, or a committee hearing. The distance gets even greater when the court says, and qualifying steps on the way to initiating a research study would also be an official act. So now we have qualifying steps that sound even further from a lawsuit, agency action, or a committee hearing, and sound perhaps a little bit more like setting up a meeting or talking to someone, those things that we now know are not official actions. The other place the relationship really gets attenuated is in the performance of the act. The, an official can perform an official act themselves, or that official can use his position to exert pressure on another official or advise another official, knowing that that advice will form the basis of an official act by that other official. So here again, the relationship between the action by the defendant in the case and the official action has grown. Um, Harvey and I don't even get into this in the article, but of course, when you charge someone with conspiracy to do this, you, the relationship will also become more attenuated. That is its own separate article, I think. Um, there are also problems in applying the statute that become apparent when you stop looking at governors. McDonald was a full-time, high-level employee of a state, but you have plenty of people who are not governors who are pu prosecuted for public corruption. Strictly construed, 
the court's decision might permit some, at least under the federal law, some degree of pay to play for lower level employees. And this was a hypothetical that came up at oral argument about what about if your job is to schedule meetings for your boss? If scheduling a meeting is not an official act, does that mean you can pay someone to schedule meetings and it wouldn't be a bribe? The court doesn't really grapple with this in its decision, but what it, that seems to indicate to me is that the pressure to expand what an official act is is going to exist as soon as you are prosecuting someone who's not a governor, but someone who's a little bit lower down the food chain. Because where their behavior is unsavory and subject to all this press scrutiny, um, I think it's going to be very hard for people to say, well, well, that doesn't fit under the statute. We're going to permit that. I think there's going to be pressure to increase the scope. The other thing that that McDonald really doesn't address is the, the fundamental question left over, open by skilling about what the criterion of guilt is. Most state and local officials who are not governors are part-time employees. They are expected to have income generating activity on the side. We value this. Maybe you'll have a plumber on the City Arts Commission, but more often than not, there's going to be some relationship between their private sector work and their public sector work. And in fact, we often want that because it brings valuable private sector skills into the public sector. But the question then is, when there is some closeness or when the, the, the private sector and public sector work are adjacent in some way, if you're lobbying and consulting on the side and you're also a part-time public official, what if you are advising and exerting pressure in your private capacity, things that might be official acts? Where is the line? What's the duty that you have to breach to convert that from legitimate income generating activity into a bribe? This is where we get into somewhat circular discussions of things like corrupt intent, um, which is a broader question. But McDonald fundamentally doesn't grapple with this, just as Skilling didn't grapple with it. The pitch that Harvey and I make in our, our article is, is basically twofold. The Honest Services Statute, with its long and tortured his history, we think should be put out of its misery as incurably vague, just as it was from day one. Um, the second is a plea for a more rigorous adoption of um, the vagueness or application of the vagueness doctrine and application of the rule of lenity. Um, the vagueness doctrine did see some life last year in the Supreme Court in Johnson, and certainly with these prosecutions of unpopular, unsavory defendants, we'd like to see this rigorously applied so that everybody knows ahead of time what the rules are. Now, bear with me for a minute while I change track completely and go off on my favorite tangent about this case. What I find fascinating about the decision is actually what's not in the decision. McDonald's defense can basically be summed up as the following, ingratiation and access are not corruption. That's a quote from McCutcheon VFEC, a campaign finance decision, which is in turn quoting Citizens United. That is all over the briefs in this case, the amicus briefs and the party's briefs. Chief Justice Roberts authored both McDonnell and McCutcheon. And yet McDonnell completely ignores First Amendment issues. It doesn't quote this language. It doesn't talk about the First Amendment. It appears that the court may be crafting a distinction between pure speech, talking to someone, setting up a meeting, and conduct, on the other hand, things that you can check off an on an agenda that is official action. Um, but it seems clear that it's a fairly deliberate choice to exclude the First Amendment from this decision. 
Um, and it's consistent with what some of the amicus briefs on the side of the government ask for. They come in and say, we don't really have an opinion about all the corruption stuff, but please don't stretch Citizens United any further. Um, I obviously don't have any reason to know this, but I suspect that the reason this is a unanimous decision is both that there was an agreement to keep the First Amendment issues out of it, and also when you have a highly politicized or political topic like this, it helps institutional legitimacy, of course, to have a narrow, unanimous decision. Um, but I think it's very interesting when you read the briefs and see all the First Amendment stuff, and then you read the decision um, to, to, to recognize what has been left out entirely. So as we heard a week ago, the federal government announced that it would not seek to retry McDonald. And so while he's now free and clear, pred, uh, federal prosecutions of state and local officials are not going away. We now have two Supreme Court cases in the past decade acknowledging that the view the government is taking of these statutes um, raises serious constitutional vagueness problems. But it goes without saying that most defendants are not going to get to the Supreme Court and prosecutions will continue to proceed under statutes that, because they don't define the behavior being prosecuted, um, are going to give federal prosecutors and courts wide latitude in defining what is and is not appropriate state and local political conduct. I think this decision is a placeholder. I think there will be a sequel. Thank you, Emma. We're going to turn now to uh, the forfeiture case, Louise v. United States, where the court decided that the pretrial freeze of a criminal defendant's legitimate, untainted assets, leaving the defendant unable to choose his own counsel, violates the Sixth Amendment. So this isn't a head-on forfeiture case. It's a second derivative forfeiture case uh, of the kind that uh, David B. Smith has specialized in. And so we're very fortunate to have him with us to discuss this complex case. He's an old friend of the Cato Institute who is, without doubt, the nation's leading forfeiture expert. David uh, is a partner at uh, Smith & Zimmerman, just across the river in Arlington, Virginia. He served for nine years uh, on the board of the NACDL, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and has been chair of its forfeiture committee since 1990. For nearly a decade prior to entering private practice, he was a prosecutor in the criminal division of the Justice Department and at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia. Most important for our purposes, uh, David is the author of the leading two-volume legal treatise on forfeiture. He is, as I said, the leading forfeiture expert in the country today. The title of that is Prosecution and Defense of Forfeiture Cases. Please welcome David B. Smith. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, I, um, uh, Roger stated the uh, decision in Lewis uh, Luis uh, versus United States, this term, the decision was that uh, the government and the courts cannot restrain or uh, cannot seize untainted assets that are subject to forfeiture, um, cr to criminal forfeiture. Um, it's important to understand that uh, 
in, in, if you're not familiar with criminal forfeiture, it'll, there are provisions that allow the government to um, forfeit clean property, legitimate property, as a substitute for the illegitimately earned uh, proceeds or other uh, tainted property. And the, the, um, this is a very frequently used provision because very often the government can't find the tainted property. It's been, it's been hidden or the, the defendant has spent it and, and the only thing they can go after are his legitimate assets, which, which are called substitute property. So the issue in Luis was, can the government restrain his clean substitute property which may be subject to forfeiture ultimately, but um, is is distinct from property that is is tainted because it's directly traceable to the crime. Um, so um, back in 1989, the Supreme Court decided a case called U.S. versus Monsanto. Um, I think it's important to emphasize the date, 1989. Um, that was really at the height of the drug wars. It's also right about the time when murders peaked in the United States. It was a time when uh, there was a war on crime and, uh, and the Supreme Court was participating in that war. And forfeiture was viewed as a very useful weapon in this war on drugs especially. Back then, forfeiture was still largely used in drug cases and in, and in racketeering cases, and there wasn't, there wasn't widespread use of forfeiture for other types of crimes. Today, we have forfeiture for everything, uh, so long as it's a felony, and, and it's used a lot in white-collar cases, and that, I think, has made a difference. Um, but more importantly, the whole swing of the pendulum away from tough on crime politics in the 80s and 90s towards a more balanced view of justice. Um, and also the, um, the government's continual abuse of the forfeiture laws, both civil and criminal, uh, which has been heavily criticized by the press and, and politicians, um, I think enabled the court or um, cause the court to want to take another look at the correctness of this 1989 decision in Monsanto. And there's, there, there were indications already in 2014 when the court decided another uh, case involving uh, pretrial restraints and criminal forfeiture cases, Cayley, Cayley versus United States. During the oral argument of Cayley, a number of the justices expressed some concerns with the, um, with the Monsanto decision from 1989, although it didn't really make it into the, um, the decision. Um, those, those concerns were very sharply expressed at, at oral argument. Uh, two, two years later, this year, the, the court granted cert in this Luis versus United States case, even though the 11th Circuit's decision um, did not create a circuit conflict, um, and it was, moreover, it was an unpublished decision. Uh, I don't think anybody expected the court to grant cert in that case, but it did, and I think the reason it did was because um, it wasn't satisfied with the current 
um, situation uh, exemplified by Monsanto and Cayley, which made it very easy for the government to restrain or seize forfeitable assets prior to trial and to essentially pauperize the defendant and prevent him from retaining counsel of choice. Uh, the, the, the majority in Monsanto, which was a five to four decision, um, just brushed aside the, the right to counsel concerns uh, very, very cavalierly and said, well, it's good enough if you can get a public defender to defend you, kind of uh, completely ignoring the fact that very often a public defender is not adequate to defend e even, even a simple criminal case, much less a complex one. Um, and again, back in 1989, we're basically talking about drug cases, and there's not too many people who feel kindly towards drug defendants. Um, today, we're talking about a whole host of big white-collar cases involving forfeiture, where it's, it's, it's abundantly apparent that uh, an overworked and understaffed public defender's office uh, is not going to be capable of adequately defending a, a, a major complex white-collar case. So, uh, and, and the court said that in the Luis decision, uh, this time giving very short shrift to the government's argument that, uh, which succeeded in Monsanto, that um, oh, just so long as you can get a uh, court-appointed lawyer, that's fine. Um, something also happened at oral, ar oral argument, which was very illuminating. Um, a number of the justices, ironically, particularly Justice Kennedy, who ended up as one of the two, what, what I call the two dissenters in the case, Kennedy and Alito, uh, Kennedy grilled Deputy Solicitor General Dreeben about the dire consequences of accepting the government's argument in Luis. Um, Justice Kennedy pointed out that, uh, quote, the necessary consequence of your position is that any state in the union can provide for forfeiture or a freeze of assets pending trial in any assault and battery case, spousal abuse case, date rape cases, in order to make the victim whole and to pay for their medical costs, to pay for pain and suffering, and, and can freeze those assets, even if the consequence of that is that most of these cases, uh, uh, it, people can't afford counsel. Uh, and to which the Chief Justice added, and I guess this could apply to every crime on the books, couldn't it, Mr. Dreeben? And Dreeben didn't blink. He said, yes, of course, yes, this can apply to all sorts of cases. And that's good, that's a good thing. Let's just completely abolish the right to counsel. Um, that's, that's basically the Justice Department's argument. We, that's that's hunky-dory with us. Um, but it wasn't hunky-dory with the majority of the court, or indeed, um, evidently, Justice Kennedy had those concerns. But for some reason, I don't understand. He, 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 he wrote the dissent um, after bringing out that scary um, uh, dialogue with 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 the Justice Department. Um, so, but the the majority decision, which was uh, written by um, Justice Breyer, uh, clearly expresses concerns about the fact that the the government's argument has um, uh, no obvious stopping place, uh, and that he was referring to that 
uh, that dialogue with Mr. Dreeben at, at oral argument, um, if the court allowed the government to freeze Luis's untainted assets, there, there'd be no stopping the states and the federal government from enacting a whole host of statutes, not, not even all forfeiture statutes. They could enact restitution statutes that um, basically allowed the government to freeze all of a defendant's legitimate assets because he might need them to pay restitution if he was convicted and if the court ordered a high enough restitution amount. And, and that was not actually a slight concern because just a few years ago, the Senate actually unanimously passed a bill which would have done just that. Um, and I, I, was, I opposed that bill. Um, I was shocked to learn that nobody in the Senate had read it um, <laughs> before voting unanimously for this, basically the end of right to counsel. Um, and luckily, it was killed in the House Judiciary Committee where people actually had read the bill. They, conduct, they had a real hearing on it. Um, and um, I, I and other people testified about what the dire consequences would be if that bill was enacted. Um, so, the, the, and by the way, you know, the Justice Department at, on at least three separate occasions has proposed legislation to allow for the pretrial restraint of clean assets in any criminal forfeiture case. Um, the, so, you know, it was on their agenda. They never got any of that legislation passed. Um, but it's a real threat to the right to counsel. And, and the, the court realized that and, and stopped it uh, dead in its tracks here. Um, a the the the, the decision is based on a distinction between uh, tainted and untainted assets. That's how they were able to uh, distinguish the Monsanto case from 1989 um, without overruling it. Um, but it's clear that a number of the justices have deep concerns with the correctness of the Monsanto decision. And uh, Justice... Um, uh, Kagan expressed that in her separate opinion. It appears to me uh, that she wanted to overrule Monsanto too, and um, be but because uh, Miss Luis never never challenged the correctness of Monsanto, the the court was not willing to go there in this case. But I I'm sure that in the future there will be challenges to um, Monsanto itself, the, the the one dealing with tainted property. Um, because a lot of the arguments that the majority made uh, in Luis could also apply to um, to the uh, case of tainted assets. Um, and if you look at the majority opinion by Breyer, it actually tracks the, the four-man dissent in Monsanto much uh, pre pretty closely. The same arguments were available uh, to... Uh, challenge the, the government's um, ability to deprive you of counsel by taking away your tainted assets. So I, I expect more, more litigation on this and, and more progress. Um, one, um, one unfortunate note in the majority opinion is that um, it says that uh, um, there's, little, there's little reason to worry 
um, that defendants will be allowed to circumvent the usual forfeiture rules by using funds to pay for a high or even the highest priced defense team they can find um, because according to the majority, judges uh, know, um, uh, have, have a lot of experience determining how much money is needed to cover the costs of a lawyer. Of a lawyer. Um, to me, that suggests that the court is, is, is going to tolerate uh, district court judges saying, okay, you can, I'll release some money for you to hire a lawyer, but I'm not going to release enough money for you to hire the lawyer you want to choose because he's too expensive um, and you don't, you don't really need the best lawyer in this case. It's good enough that you be able to hire somebody. Um, and and that's, um, uh, that's very unfortunate. I, I expect you'll see a lot of judges who don't like the Supreme Court's decision using that loophole to essentially undermine what the, uh, what the court was trying to do here. Um, th there's really a lot more to cover. Justice Thomas wrote a, a terrific concurring opinion. Uh, it's an originalist opinion. I believe that if Justice Scalia hadn't died a month after the oral argument in Luis, he definitely would have been with Justice Thomas on this opinion, which goes beyond what the majority, what the plurality said. Um, it, it, it rests squarely on the constitutional language and common law precedents, which, and the discussion there is very interesting. Um, I, um, let's see, I, oh, the, a couple of more points that are very important. Um, the, the court in, in Luis um, discusses uh, 21 U.S.C. 853, uh, which is the main criminal forfeiture statute, not the one involved in, in Luis, but they, they extensively discuss that uh, statute and they hold uh, th that it does not author, doesn't even authorize uh, the pretrial restraint of, tainted, of untainted clean assets, not even authorized. So that is forbidden. Uh, whether or not you need that, those assets to pay counsel, just forbidden across the board. And that is a statute that's used in 98% of criminal forfeiture cases. Um, it, most of the circuits had already held that it can't be used for that to, to um, uh, seize or freeze untainted assets. But the Fourth Circuit, my circuit, uh, had uh, stuck to its, its 1990 decision on that point uh, with der terrible results within the Fourth Circuit. Prosecutors were able to destroy the right to counsel whenever they felt like it, basically. Um, and now that, that is going to be wiped off the, um, the law books. So that, that may actually be the most significant aspect of the decision. There's also a bill pending in Congress that's already passed the House Judiciary Committee it's a civil forfeiture reform, but it also has a, a new provision for restraint of assets prior to trial. And um, it's much more generous to the defense than anything uh, we have now. It would even allow a court to release untainted, excuse me, tainted assets uh, uh, that are subject to forfeiture. Um, it, it, it gives the district judge very broad discretion and, and so it's, it, it's a huge um, 
benefit to, to the defendant and the defense bar. And uh, it's already passed the House Judiciary Committee unanimously. It has a very good chance, ultimately, of being enacted. So that's, that's the good news. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the lack of authority has hardly stopped this administration from acting. Um, we're going to now have our final uh, decision for this panel, uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers v. Hawks, uh, yet another um, seemingly endless wetlands cases that have come before the court in recent years. Here, uh, however, the question was not whether the land is properly a wetland under the Clean Water Act, but whether the owner can even go to court to argue the point in the first place. Echoes of a similar case four years earlier, where it was the EPA, not the Corps of Engineers, that was standing in front of the courthouse door. And in that case, too, Sackett v. EPA, the court ruled unanimously against the Obama administration's obstruction. Here again, we're fortunate to have one of the nation's leading property rights experts to discuss this case. Ilya Soman is a professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. He's widely published in both the scholarly and popular press, including the Yale Law Journal, the Stanford Law Review, Northwestern University Law Review, and in popular press, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. His books include Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and The Grasping Hand, Kilo v. City of New London, and The Limits of Eminent Domain. As a member of the Volek Conspiracy, affiliated with the Washington Post, he's a prominent blogger. Please welcome Ilias Soman. I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for organizing this panel and all of you for coming. Uh, my purpose on this panel was twofold. First, I'm following the rule that there must be a person named Ilya uh, on as many Cato Institute panels as possible. So we're trying to continue that practice. Second, I'm filling in for my colleague, Steve Eagle, who has written the excellent article in the Cato Supreme Court Review about the Hawks case, which I urge you all to read if you want some of the fine technical points of the case. Case. So I'm going to start off by talking about what happened in the Hawks case. Then I'll talk a little about why it matters, what are the implications of it. And then finally, I'll try to put the case in perspective in terms of what's going on with property rights at the Supreme Court more generally. So first things first, what was this even about? This case involved a 530-acre tract of land in rural Minnesota, which is apparently rich in organic peat. Now, if you're like me, you have probably never heard of organic peat until you heard about this case. I certainly didn't know what it was until I read it, but uh, apparently it is a substance that is quite valuable because it is used for soil improvement and also for fuel in some cases. Therefore, people often want to mine it and sell it, and this is exactly what the Hawks firm wanted to do. They wanted to mine it, but in the process of mining it, they would probably have to discharge some substances that would qualify as pollutants, uh, and these sorts of discharges are regulated, at least in many areas, by 
the Army Corps of Engineers. So they went to the Army Corps and said, uh, we want to do this. Uh, what is your position on this? The Corps said, well, you might have to go through a permit process that will require inspections that would take years to complete. This, however, did not deter the intrepid Hawks firm. They decided to proceed anyway. And so when they did so, the Corps issued a ruling which is known as a jurisdictional determination stating that this is a wetland which is covered by the Clean Water Act and therefore uh, if that is in fact the case, if it is in fact covered, then you have to go through a complex permit process uh, in order to get permission to uh, in fact do the kind of mining that Hawks wanted to do. Uh, now, Hawks disagreed with this determination. They said it's not the kind of wetland that is covered by the Clean Water Act. They wanted to go to court to challenge this. Uh, and of course, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers said, no, you can't actually challenge it. Eventually, the lower court, the Eighth Circuit, ruled that this kind of determination can be challenged under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and the case went up to the Supreme Court because there had been other circuits, such as the Fifth Circuit, which went the other way on this same issue. So there was a circuit split uh, over this important question. And there's really two big issues uh, that arise here. One is, is it the kind of final agency action that is reviewable in court under the Administrative Procedure Act? The second, if it is that kind of action, are there enough alternative ways to challenge the administrative agency determination that you don't have to go to court? If there's some other way that you can deal with the situation, you don't have to go to court. Uh, and the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of Hawks and against the government uh, on both of these issues. This is actually one of a series of uh, unanimous or 8-1 defeats for the Obama administration in a series of property rights cases going back uh, several years now. Uh, and all of the justices did agree on this. On the first issue uh, of whether this is in a final reviewable agency action, the issue breaks down into two parts. The first question, as Chief Justice Roberts put it, is whether this action marks the consummation of the agency's decision-making process, consummation in the sense of finality, rather in the sense of marital relations or the like. Uh, and therefore, uh, on this issue, actually, there was no real dispute uh, that it was final in this sense. Uh, even the Corps of Engineers didn't agree. Uh, but there's a second criterion that had to be met, and that is whether there were actual real legal consequences for people's rights as a result of the action. And here, too, uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts says it's clearly the answer is yes, uh, although the court did try to contest this. As he points out, uh, when you have a ruling that says this is a wetland that is covered by the Clean Water Act, that means that there's potentially serious regulatory burdens for the property owner, and it precludes the possibility of a ruling that goes the other way, which says that the owner is free and clear to do what he wants because this is not covered by uh, the act. Uh, now, there's also another issue of uh, once that we determine that this is a final agency action, you still might not be able to go to court if there are other ways that you can challenge the government's decision. And the Corps of Engineers said, look, these guys still have two other options. One thing they can do is they can just discharge their substances into the waters here and wait and see what happens. Then maybe the Corps of Engineers will come after them. This was really their argument. Not kidding. Uh, the Corps of Engineers might come after him, and then we can litigate the issue. A second possibility is 
they can go through the permit process and see what happens. Then maybe the Corps of Engineers will actually grant the permit. Uh, Robert says neither of these options is satisfactory, and he has good reasons for saying that. Uh, if you go through door number one and decide to just discharge your pollutants and take the risk, uh, that could lead to massive liability, fines of some $37,000 for every day that you do this. So this is not actually a realistic path. The second path of applying for the permit uh, and seeing how that turns out is also extremely costly. The court cites a study which says that this process, on average, takes 788 days and costs over $271,000. So this is not like a simple, easy uh, process. This is an extremely uh, costly one. And quite rightly, I think the court unanimously concludes that this is not a realistic pathway, and therefore that Hawks should be able to go to court and argue that uh, this is not covered by the Clean Water Act. There are actually three concurring opinions in this case, one by Justice Ginsburg, one by Justice Kennedy, joined by Alito and Thomas, and finally one by Justice Kagan. They all deal with a narrowly technical issue that, in my view, has very few implications for future cases and certainly doesn't alter the result in this one. But I can talk about those concurring opinions in the questions if people are interested in them. Uh, for now, I'll move on to sort of what are the broader implications of this case. One is, it makes it at least somewhat easier for landowners to challenge decisions by the Corps of Engineers and other federal agencies uh, that their property comes within the scope of the Clean Water Act. And this is actually quite significant uh, because the Clean Water Act covers an enormous amount of land uh, and uh, also bodies of water as well. Uh, the act prohibits the discharge of any pollutants into, quote, navigable waters, and navigable waters is in turn defined as waters of the United States, which is potentially extremely broad. There has now been 15 to 20 years or even more of, of litigation over this question of what exactly what qualifies as the waters of the United States, and there's a lot of disagreement over it still. It is very murky, uh, both in the literal sense that much of the water involved in murk is murky, and the legal doctrine is even murkier than the water is, uh, and therefore it does cover over a lot of land, and there's even more land and water bodies where uh, the situation is just not really clear ahead of time whether it's covered or not. So it affects a great many people, particularly uh, in the Midwest and in the mountain and western states. Uh, I think the second uh, aspect of this case, which has broader significance, is it's part of a series of cases where the Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that the government cannot infringe on people's property rights and then say you can't even go to court to even challenge that, whether that's in the Clean Water Act context or in the regulatory takings context. Uh, these cases include the Saka case several years ago, the Horn 1 case, and now this one. All of these cases are unanimous, so even the, uh, those justices who otherwise are not very protective of property rights in other contexts, here they say you should at least be able to go to court to challenge these regulations. Doesn't mean you'll win, uh, but you should at least be able to get your argument heard. Uh, I think this is also the case with some recent substantive property rights cases, which are not just procedural, such as the Arkansas Game and Fish case and the Horn 2 Raisin case from last year, where administration also in one's case lost by 9 nothing, and in the Raisin case by 8-1. to one. So uh, there is some sense that 
there's got to be a limit to what the government can do in the area of property rights, particularly from a procedural point of view. So what are the implications for the future? Well, I think this pattern towards uh, the Supreme Court cracking down on procedural abuses in the property rights area, it seems to be pretty strong. It seems to be bipartisan. Uh, and I think we can be guardly optimistic there, though, as Steve Eagle says, there are still some significant, very dubious procedural doctrines that are on the books, most notably the Williamson County Doctrine, uh, which makes it extremely difficult and often impossible for uh, plaintiffs to file regulatory takings cases directed against state or local governments uh, in federal courts. Uh, but the logic of some of these recent decisions, including this one, suggests that there's problems with Williamson County. That might be an issue that the Supreme Court will revisit in the future. I think while the court has cracked down on some more extreme abuses of substantive constitutional property rights in recent years, uh, the situation there is not nearly as good as with procedural rights. With respect to substantive property rights, there's still deep ideological division, at least on the court, between the liberal justices and the more conservative ones. Outside of the court, I think there is some trend of people on the left saying maybe we shouldn't just completely ignore these property rights. Maybe we need some stronger protection by the courts to prevent abuses. But within the court and within the federal judiciary more generally, this is still often a right versus left issue that splits people along ideological lines. Uh, there is some uh, tendency in the long run, I think, to change that. Though in the short run, I have to end on a somewhat pessimistic note that uh, obviously in this area, as in many others, what happens may well be greatly affected by who replaces Justice Scalia and other appointments may be made in coming years. And in this area, I think it is very unlikely that we can expect good appointments from either of the two major party presidential candidates. One of them has a not great record in this area. The other one has an absolutely horrendous one. Uh, one of the few issues on which he's been consistent on for many years uh, is that he's not a fan of constitutional property rights. Uh, he thinks it's a wonderful thing, in his own words, when uh, the government infringes on them. So on that not entirely optimistic note, I conclude. Uh, but I think uh, the bottom line in this case is, as Steve Eagle puts it, this is a modest but important victory for property owners. Thank you. Well, when you lose property rights cases unanimously so often, plainly the only solution is to bring more property under government control, whether it be in the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, if you've been following the news lately. All right, uh, before we turn to questions from the audience, uh, any uh, comments uh, on the panel with respect to your fellow panelists? No? Okay, then let's go to questions from the audience. Do we have the uh, microphones? Yes. Uh, please uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have and wait for the microphone to get to you. Let's start right here with the gentleman with his hand up. And I'm going to send one microphone to the next person right there to, uh, afterward. So just keep, let me know who, okay. Yes, sir. Yes, um, Pat Spann, and I may be the only one in this room who's not an attorney, but I get, I'm, Amazed that when you're talking about the, these property taxes, is it is it just a bureaucratic thing that the core wants to um, exercise power, or is it philosophical that the government 
doesn't believe in private property. I uh, inherited the family farm in upstate New York um, a couple years ago when my father passed, and um, we're still waiting for uh, fracking to be approved to uh, get rich. But the, uh, I just, it just seems like for some reason, I don't know, is, is it bureaucratic or is it just a, a philosophical thing? They just hate private property. It's, it's amazing to me. generally don't like for their actions to be challenged in court, so they will do, in most cases, whatever they can to make it as difficult as possible for people to do that. That's true in the property area. It's true in criminal law. It's true in um, many, many other areas of law. Secondly, why would not go so far as to say that they hate private property? I do think there is this ideology going back to the New Deal period and perhaps before, which says private property rights, while they have some significance, they're not really that important, and they shouldn't be allowed to stand in the way of important policy-making goals, whether it be environmental regulation, crime fighting, and one of the uh, other cases talked about in this panel, and so forth. Uh, and while over the last 30 to 40 years, that ideology has been challenged, and it's no longer the unquestioned orthodoxy uh, as it was from, say, the New Deal on through the 1970s or the early 80s. There are still a lot of people to, who adhere to that viewpoint, uh, and they're probably disproportionately represented in various federal regulatory agencies. If you're a big, huge believer in private property rights, you're likely less likely on average at least to uh, make a career in the Army Corps of Engineers or in other regulatory agencies uh, than if you believe that the Corps' mission is really important and if property rights come into conflict with it, then the property rights should give way. As Chief Justice Rehnquist famously put it, property rights are like poor relations in the Bill of Rights. Yeah, that, that, that was true for a long time. It is slowly changing, but it hasn't changed completely. Todd Gaziano. Yes, thank you. Todd Gaziano from the Pacific Legal Foundation, and I hope you don't mind. There's a purpose to me uh, pointing out that it was my colleagues at the Pacific Legal Foundation right. that that won both the Hawks case that you're talk that Professor Soman is talking about and the Sackett case both unanimously. And this is uh, one example for the audience of uh, you know a 10-year strategic uh, litigation plan, and we we uh, uh, will continue that. Um, but I wanted to add one other consequence, Ilya, to um, uh, your summary. Uh, and I, um, I'm very eager to read Professor Eagle's uh, article on it. His, his uh, discussion of the case before was uh, here at Cato was, was so good. But I doubt that, that, that he even knows. It's, it's not, not only provides um, seemingly judicial access uh, for those with property disputes. But because it was a challenge to the finality of agency decisions under the APA generally, the lower courts are not reading it as narrowly as, for example, they did Sackett. We're now getting lower court decisions that apply it to many other agency actions, properly so. And I, and I hope to encourage everyone in this room, including those at, at Cato who continue to support such great litigation uh, uh, to, to file guidance, challenge guidance documents and, and all sorts of other things that agencies claim aren't final but that they are relying on. We've had one lower court uh, decision even apply it to the Department of, of Labor. Uh, Reed Hopper is my 
uh, argued and won uh, this last case, and he's the one that hits the shepherd's button every day. But uh, I encourage you all to do so. And um, uh, maybe Ilya, I don't know if you want to comment, uh, shouldn't it have an application uh, uh, beyond property rights since it was a basic APA decision? I thought there might be a question in there somewhere. Tom. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's a good question and a good comment. I certainly commend Pacific Legal Foundation for not only for winning these two cases, but more generally for their efforts in this area where they've won a large number of cases, some in the Supreme Court, some elsewhere. And Todd is absolutely right, both in this area of law and in quite a number of others, the way you achieve legal change is often through a long-term strategy that goes through many cases, both Supreme Court cases and often lower court follow-ups. In terms of your question, uh, I absolutely agree that at least some of this logic must apply beyond the Clean Water Act uh, situation. Exactly how far, it's not entirely clear. This is part of the murkiness of the doctrine in this area that goes beyond the murkiness of water, if you like. But one part that I think is significant and must apply in at least some other areas is uh, Chief Justice Roberts' discussion of this question of when are there actually realistic alternative pathways to challenge the government's action. And here he essentially says it's not realistic. Why? Because it would be very costly and it would take a long time. And this sort of problem obviously is not unique to the Clean Water Act situations. Uh, the wheels of government bureaucracy often grind very slowly and also very expensively uh, in some other areas of law as well. So uh, he doesn't tell us exactly where you draw the line. If 788 days is too long, would 588 days be uh, not so bad or 188 days? And if $270,000 is too much, what about 100,000 or whatnot? So it's uh, as in many Supreme Court decisions, it's not always easy to say where the line is drawn, but at the very least, these factors of time and expense are clearly considered important, and hopefully future litigation will test this further, uh, because this is not the only area where this sort of thing happens. It is not my claim, by the way, that the plaintiffs, or the property owners, or others regulated should always prevail in these cases, but I do think that if you're being hit by a very burdensome government regulation of this sort, you should at least have an opportunity in court to show that they're not acting legally. Uh, that's reasonable. Uh, if you have a bad argument, it can be thrown out of court on a summary judgment motion, but you should at least be allowed to present it. Paul Kaminer. Thank you, Roger. Uh, David, uh, you and I have been collaborating on another aspect of uh, uh, asset forfeiture, and that is where the government seizes bank accounts where the deposits are under $10,000, uh, even though they're from legal source. Um, and and uh, uh, there's now this petitions for remission that we're now working on getting that back, and we had a couple successes on that. Just one information, there is a bill that'll be on the floor next week, H.R. 5532, that's actually named after my client, Randy Sowers, that will stop the IRS from uh, uh, seizing legal source funds, and if they do, to give them notice. Uh, I know you've got a problem with the Postal Service doing it and so forth, too, so there's a wrinkle there. My question on Luis, though, there's my question, Roger, uh, is uh, what is the uh, uh, impact of it in terms of retroactivity for all those souls that are out there behind bars who, whose uh, fund, untainted funds were seized and had to get a public defender? What, how does that apply? And one quick one to Emma with respect to uh, the McDonald case, whether 
what do you think of the speech and debate clause defense that Senator Menendez is raising in that case? Thank you. Um, well, um, I really haven't uh, researched the, um, the issue of the retroactivity uh, of um, uh, the decision in Luis, but I, I do know that a number of uh, folks who were, you know, and they're mostly, for, guess where, the Fourth Circuit, of course, where we lived under this horrible regime for 25 years until this year. Um, th those, you know, people are filing 2255s alleging that they were wrong, unconstitutionally deprived of the means to defend themselves, to, re to hire, uh, retain counsel uh, because of these incorrect decisions. And, um, and, and, and I, I, I hope they succeed. Um, they're going to have to um, battle through a very hostile court system in the Fourth Circuit to succeed. Uh, but, you know, hopefully somebody will take it up to the Supreme Court and, and the court won't wait another 25 years to give them justice. I don't think I want to jump in on something where I don't feel adequately, I'm afraid, up to date on exactly what Senator Menendez is arguing. So I, I, I'm going to punt that. But if you wanted to elaborate further, I'd be interested. Uh, my name is Paul Jossi. I have a question about the, um, uh, the McDonald case. Uh, you talked about how uh, in McCutcheon, the uh, Roberts limited uh, corruption to the definition of corruption to quid pro quo. Um, and in, I'm sure you know, in the, the campaign finance milieu, this is a very uh, recent development in, uh, in um, Shrink versus Missouri in 2000 and McConnell v. FEC in 2003. They, the court took a much more expansive view of corruption uh, to include uh, access and, and meetings and those sorts of things. So I'm wondering, uh, and, and there are, by the way, of course, as I'm sure you know, four justices on the Supreme Court right now who are very anxious to... Uh, expand the, the, corrupt, the definition of corruption again. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you think of the possibility, if that happens, a, another campaign finance case comes where the definition is then, uh, of corruption is then again expanded, how that dynamic changes for uh, honest services and the Hobbs Act and the other things you mentioned. So approaching your, your question somewhat backwards, I would say one of the interesting things about McDonnell is that um, while skilling appears to implicitly endorse what's known as the stream of benefits service, um, stream of benefits analysis of bribery and quid pro quo corruption, so you don't have to exactly identify the quo, which is where the campaign finance cases have differed. Um, while skilling appeared to endorse that by citing several lower court decisions, including one by uh, then Judge Sotomayor, uh, McDonald completely avoids those cases. And the language in McDonnell about um, uh, the quid pro, about official action needing to be something focused and specific suggests a narrower version of quid pro quo, which I think is in keeping with uh, the campaign finance cases. So I don't know where that will go next, but certainly there does seem to be a narrowing. It hasn't been done directly, so I don't know that the lower courts will necessarily pick up on that. Um, but there's a series of cases that are sort of string-sided and skilling, and then they just disappear in the citations in McDonnell. And so that, to me, does suggest um, a willingness to raise the bar on quid pro quo. Thank you. I'll stand up because my question is for Mr. Smith, and I can't see him behind the uh, podium. Um, 
uh, Jack Metzler. I'm with a uh, federal agency who I'm not speaking for today. Uh, but my question is, on the Luis case, how do you see that playing out in civil cases where the, the right to counsel is not uh, at issue, at least not in the same way, and uh, often uh, cases involving fraud where it's not clear that there are any assets that are, that are untainted, uh, and largely all of the defendant's assets are, are often uh, frozen in advance of, of any finding of liability. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's an easy question to answer, and here's why. Because in civil forfeiture cases, you can only forfeit tainted illegal assets. There is no concept of uh, forfeiting clean substitute assets in a civil forfeiture case. So this, the, the narrow issue that the Supreme Court decided in Luis doesn't arise in a civil forfeiture case. Um, the, the, um, however, there, is, um, there are uh, civil forfeiture cases involving tainted assets, um, this, which essentially adopt the Monsanto um, uh, decision and, and, and with minor adjustments for the civil forfeiture context, uh, they, they apply Monsanto. So if the government seizes property tainted property for civil forfeiture, um, you, have, you can ask for what's called a Monsanto hearing. Um, that is a hearing on whether um, most circuits require you to show you need those assets to retain your counsel in the related criminal case or a criminal case, um, not just in the civil forfeiture case. Um, and they, you also have to show that there's uh, reason to believe that the uh, seizure of so, at least some of your assets is not supported by probable cause. Uh, so um, that's basically the Monsanto formula, um, although, um, you know, the circuits are, are heavily divided on exactly what you need to show to get into court under this, you know, to get what's called a Monsanto hearing in court. Um, and, but I, I find that all of their uh, different tests for that are too restrictive, and, and I, I hope the Supreme Court will take one of those cases for which there's been a circuit split for decades uh, and, and you know, adopt a better uh, approach. And I mentioned during the lecture that the House of Representatives bill, it's called the Due Process Act of 2016, uh, has a wonderful uh, statute uh, amendment that would make it much easier to get assets unfrozen after they've been frozen, and, and um, that could solve the problem. Well, now that Monsanto's been taken over by what, Bayer is it? Maybe the Monsanto <laughs> issue will no longer be available. Um, yeah, the Monsanto. Uh, yes, we have a question right up there. I want to ask both of the... Uh, the identify yourself, Joel please. Mandelman. Oh. So I want to ask both of the defense lawyers, what kind of statute would you feel comfortable with that would prevent uh, Governor McDonald, or for that matter, Senator Kane, uh, from having, from ever accepting the kinds of gifts that they took when they were in public office? Because it seems to me that's not the sort of thing you want a public official to be doing, whether it violates the Honest Services Act or not. Right. Um, do you want to I'm, take that? I'm happy to jump in. Um, a state statute 
first of all, uh, not necessarily a criminal statute. Now, Virginia did revise its gift-giving provisions after this case, and so gift-giving on the scale that uh, that both um, Tim Kaine and Governor McDonnell received um, gifts would no longer be permissible. Uh, so I would say a state statute, whether it's criminal or civil, would be the appropriate place to deal with that. I recognize that there is a separate question about states' willingness a state's willingness to prosecute individuals under its own system. But for example, in Governor McDonald's case, they had appointed an independent special counsel. Um, and my recollection is that that process was sort of ongoing when the feds stepped in. Um, so that would be where I would start. That would be, uh, I, I think you'd have the, an, the easiest time defining it there because you would, as I said, be looking at um, rules that probably would function uh, within a broader regulatory si um, system. You would probably have some guidance and some regulations, and some might be civil and some might be criminal and some might just be disclosure obligations. I mean, there are a whole series of ways to deal with it uh, that give people much more notice about what the rules are and don't subject you to a criminal statute with you know, 15 and 20 year um, prison terms. And I would just add that Virginia, the Virginia legislature did enact a reform uh, to its um, laws governing uh, bribery and acceptance of gifts uh, as a result of the McDonald case. And they, uh, although it doesn't go as far as, you know, many people wanted them to go, uh, it, it does limit uh, most gifts to uh, less than $100. So that's a, that's a substantial change from the almost, you know, laughable lack of regulation that existed in Virginia, before, my state, uh, before McDonald. I would just add, as a Virginia state employee, to my knowledge, these regulations do not limit gifts you can give to Virginia State University professors, so I'm still <laughs> happy to accept your gifts over $100 if you care to send them to influence my official actions. <laughs> What's your price? Uh, well, what are you willing to bid? <laughs> Devin? That's right, market pricing. This is the Cato Institute, so we have market pricing. So my name is Devin Watkins from the Cato Institute, and my question is from Mr. Smith. Uh, it was a question I saw from my own research in one of the amici in the case. It wasn't as much about uh, the pretrial as well it would apply to that forfeiture, but also about post-trial forfeiture after the conviction. Uh, the treason clause prohibits treason uh, in, for corruption of blood and forfeiture beyond the life of the person. And I wonder, do you think in the future people are going to start looking at that for untainted assets that are held not just as a life estate, but permanently taken from the person after conviction? Uh, well, there have been a number of challenges to, uh, raised in court to uh, relying on this uh, provision, which was to, uh, which that's a constitutional provision that um, was an act, was uh, uh, part of the original constitution. It was designed to overrule the uh, old English doctrine of of uh, uh, f forfeiture of a state. Uh, which involves something, also something called corruption of blood, so that you're, if you committed a felony, you, you, not only would all your assets be forfeited, but your, your children couldn't get those assets because they're your, your, you know, you're the same blood. Um, the, the, those challenges have been unsuccessful, the courts have rejected them. I, 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 we don't have time to explain why. But, um, but uh, the, 
it, it is, what the courts are now allowed to do in terms of these personal money judgments, which are for huge amounts of money, millions of dollars that uh, you can get in a criminal forfeiture case, which completely wipe out the defendant and and make it impossible for him to ever pay them. They do, to me, they resemble this ancient practice of uh, forfeiture of a state. And I think... um, uh, and guess what? You don't even get a jury trial when the government is, is you know, under the federal rules. You don't get a jury trial on the issue of forfeiture if the government is seeking a personal money judgment of this this type. Um, I, I, there's, a, there's a whole lot of... Uh, I've written an article for the Heritage Foundation. It's on their website that compares criminal forfeiture and civil forfeiture. And uh, actually, criminal forfeiture needs a lot more reform even than civil forfeiture, but it's not getting the attention that it deserves uh, for reasons I don't really understand. All these great libertarian organizations that I work with seem to be focused almost entirely on civil forfeiture reform, and which they're doing a great job on, but um, they don't tend to want to look at criminal forfeiture, and I, I think that's a, that needs to be done. Well, the reason uh, we focus on Civil forfeiture is because the underlying doctrine is so appalling, namely that it's the property itself that is guilty and is therefore forfeitable, subject to seizure and forfeitable to the government. And that strikes many of us as um, bizarre and many a lawyer as bizarre who has a forfeiture case walk into his office and the owner explains what happened and what the argument is and the lawyer says that can't be right and then he goes to the books. You're book, for example, says this is, this is right, and it's, it's a bizarre area of the law that comes uh, indeed uh, from ancient uh, history, the Goring, Ox, and other such cases. A, uh, we're going to draw this to a conclusion, this panel, but a housekeeping uh, before we do so. Um, unlike the conclusion of the last panel, uh, this one will have a break, but we will start the looking ahead panel Uh, sharply in uh, 15 minutes, that's quarter of uh, four, and it will run until five, and then there will be no break as we move into the uh, B. Kenneth Simon lecture by Justice uh, Clint Bolick, and uh, that's, so keep that in mind. Be back here promptly at quarter of, um, quarter of uh, four, and there are restrooms downstairs at this level and more on the second level. So see you back here in, well, 13 minutes. Let's have an applause for our guests. <laughs>